0: Welcome to In The Know, the way we will connect you with the good work that is happening in the field of diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, and belonging. This conversation will be kid-friendly and car-ride safe. I am Leah Jackson, and I use the pronoun she, her, hers. Today, I am talking about seeing difference. So by this point, you have all likely learned and exercised your ability to name the core cultural identifiers. Think age, ethnicity, gender, religion, race. The list continues and is consistently edited to include those characteristics that properly identify an ever-evolving population. Today we're going to think about one of those identities, race and how our visible similarities and differences can affect how we interact with each other. As educators, there are certain rituals and routines that become a part of our schedules. We carefully craft our class messaging through syllabi and icebreaker activities, and if you are anything like me, you spend too much time deciding on the most appropriate first day of school outfit to help make that first impression with your new class. We also pore over class rosters, trying to learn our students' names, trying to memorize faces so as not to confuse one for another, which we all know at some point is bound to happen. And it does. It does happen. It happens to most of us. It has happened to me. I was teaching a middle school visiting class with students I did not know very well, but I had welcomed them into the idea lab two times prior to work on their projects. So it was on their third visit that I called student A, student B's name. As soon as my mouth finished saying the syllables, I realized it was a mistake, and while this misstep may not seem like a big deal, the fact that both students were of the same race, both students were of an underrepresented race and a race that was different from my own, made it a huge deal to me. as a black woman, didn't I know better? I often commiserate with Toni Cross, another black woman with similar skin tone, that we are often mistaken for each other by students, parents, even colleagues. So didn't I know better than to do the same thing to my students? I mean, I'm a diversity liaison, trained in the things of equity, inclusion, justice, and belonging, and I still fell into the trap of what is called the cross-race effect. The cross-race effect sometimes is also called a cross-race bias, other-race bias, or own-race bias, and it is a tendency to more easily recognize faces that belong to one's own racial group. In social psychology, the cross-race effect is described as the, quote, in-group advantage. So what does that all mean? Well, it means that from my vantage point as a black woman, it is easier for me to distinguish and recognize the faces of other black folks than it is, let's say, for me to do the same for folks of Asian descent or Latinx folks or any other identity other than the one in which I belong. So what does this say about me as a person or maybe even as an educator? surely as a diversity practitioner. It says that I'm human and that my brain works in a predictable way around seeing racial difference. And if you don't believe me, I will let a expert from Seeker explain it to you a little bit more thoroughly.
1: The same nodes in our brain linked to facial recognition also help us distinguish animals, objects, and even car types. These areas discovered using fMRI include the occipital face area, the fusiform face area, superior temporal sulcus, and an old friend, the amygdala. Those parts of the brain light up because the way people build expertise for dog breeds in cars is the same way we do it for faces. If you're consistently around diverse faces, you can more easily tell them apart. If not, we call this sociological and psychological phenomena own race bias. The theory of own-race bias posits that people tend to be better at recognizing faces from their own race than across races. We're talking about race here as a combination of socially significant physical features because we all know by now there's no biological basis to race, right? Own-race faces are better remembered when compared with memory for faces of another, less familiar race, and this is called the cross-race effect. And it starts mad early. In 2013, a group of researchers found that babies as young as two months old prefer faces compared to other geometric shapes. This shows that even as a baby, we're building facial expertise. But if you're building your facial expertise up from a young age in a racially homogenous community, those are all the faces you know. So of course, you know your racial in-group extremely well. As for anyone outside of your race, you have a tough time, my guy. See, Mamoru told me I'm not racist. First of all, I did not say that. CRE does exist, but it's not a blanket excuse for not telling people apart. This goes all the way from telling Octavia Spencer and Viola Davis apart, to being able to discern between two Asian co-workers. Even I've been confused with my friend Yodoye and we don't look the same. We're just black at the same time. Not only that, but the cross-race effect makes eyewitness testimony less reliable because what if the dude on the stand can't tell black or Asian people apart and someone gets wrongfully convicted? Some evidence shows that simply being aware of the CRE can help your brain focus on more subtle differences of faces and thus treat people in other race groups as individuals and not just people who are part of a monolithic other group. The cross-race effect is something to keep in mind when you can't tell people from another race apart, but it shouldn't be an excuse for not trying.
0: Okay. He said a mouthful of great stuff, so let's recap. First, very few of us have general facial expertise, especially outside of our own race. We can blame this on the socialization of racism from birth or even before. Our families and racial identity of those who are around us the most, maybe the communities in which we were raised, the schools we attended, the social circles we choose to connect to and those we do not. These are all points of exposure that can either build this expertise or that can increase the likelihood of maintaining this very natural own race bias. So what can we do to build our expertise as educators? One way is to study. Yep study those rosters and study those faces of course if this task didn't seem daunting enough let's add masks that now cover two-thirds of our students faces oh and let's add an owl and a monitor to further distance ourselves from the people we teach yes in this COVID-19 world the practice of breaking our own race bias has just been elevated to this is really hard Sometimes the challenge is battling our bias, and sometimes the challenge is learning how to really see our students and letting them know that they are seen and recognized. So when looking at the rosters doesn't feel like enough, I'm gonna give you five ways that we can work to affirm our students' identities. One. Commit to learning the name each student wishes to be called and be real with students as you do. Take the time to discuss names and what each student chooses to be called. It's never too late to do this. I have revisited the conversation months into the school year if I am not sure or if I needed to be reminded. I think the question just needs to be asked. Two, remember pronunciation counts. So if a student has a unique name, no Holly Hathaways here, chances are you are not the first person to not know how to properly pronounce it. Ask students how to properly pronounce their names so that you can continue to work on it. Let them know that it is important for you to call them what they want to be called, whether that is their accurately enunciated, unique, beautiful name or a nickname. Let them know that you recognize who they are in this simple way. Three, use mnemonics. This next example was not an actual direct result of the cross-race effect, but a good demonstration of the beauty of mnemonics. So for months after one of my favorite HB colleagues joined our team, I mispronounced her name to students. I just didn't know, I had never heard it said until she heard me mispronounce her name and corrected me by saying, it's pronounced Kalo, like Halo. Shout out to Miss Kalo. Now I have the pronunciation of her name down, but also I use that mnemonic when I tell others how to pronounce her name as well. It has now been stamped into my brain. So this strategy could also work for any other name that you may find yourself struggling to remember. Four, practice like conferences are coming tomorrow, which for upper school, they likely are. So this goes back to the idea of practice, practice, practice. Say a student's name every time you see them. Maybe sometimes just in your head, maybe not always out loud, but enough that it helps you fight that bias and not stumble when you need to say it audibly. Number five, Tell students the story of your name and ask them to share their stories with you. Anytime we can engineer genuine connections with students, we do, and we should. And this is a great opportunity to do that while taking some notes that can help you affirm their individual identities. These conversations will likely expose more than just their name's story and could show you a peek into other parts of their identity that they are willing to share. All of which you can affirm and acknowledge in your awesome educator ways. And of course, in our HB community, we don't just teach, right? We learn. We interact with students, but we also work with grown-ups. So using these affirmation strategies can reach beyond your classroom and allow you to better connect with your colleagues, parents and others. The first step is to recognize that the bias exists. Acknowledge that it takes work and energy to combat bias, but also that bias is very natural. So if you're wondering how I handled my misstep with my student A, let me tell you. First, I acknowledged it. I stopped and I looked student A straight in the eyes and I apologized, saying, I am sorry. I called you the wrong name. I know your name is Student A. I apologize, and I will work on not doing it again, as I know how it feels to be called the wrong name sometimes. Was it enough? I'm not really sure. Did I call Student A the wrong name again? I did not. Now, I could relate to the experience as someone who was also in a Underrepresented racial group and shared that with the student in order to form a connection. But what if you are in the majority and you do the same thing? I would still start with a genuine acknowledgement and apology. If you remember our community norms, and you should because we discuss them often, there are a few super important bullets on the list that come in handy in this particular situation. One is the reminder to be self-responsible. I am the one who needs to learn and grow from this particular situation. The second is to lean into discomfort. Was I sweating bullets after the wrong student's name fell out of my mouth? Um, absolutely. Could I have walked away and pretended I didn't say it? Maybe. Would it have been easier to just laugh it off and say, oops, my bad? Probably. But the act of consciously acknowledging and genuinely apologizing mattered in that moment. My comfort did not. The next norm, make some mistakes then let it go. Mind you, every time I see student A, even years later, I remember that this happened. And that memory is what pushed me to be a better study of my rosters and to more carefully choose my words but it does not affect how I respond to or treat that student. And lastly, the norm says suspend judgment of yourselves and others. We all make mistakes, it's human nature to do so. It's what you do after the mistake that counts the most. I hope that you feel like you are a little more in the know. Anything quoted in this episode will be linked with this audio recording along with the transcript. And all sound snippets and their sources will also be cited. All editing was done by Tony Cross. Thank you so much.